On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking to the new director of the HSR about the unique challenges she'll be facing as she takes over that position. We're talking about Paul Bernardo's parole hearing that did not go particularly well. I mean, for him, for everyone else, it was fantastic. But why do we even have these when there is zero chance that he's going to be getting out? Well, we'll try and dive into that one. And we talk about the resurgence of vinyl records. It's amazing how much demand there is for vinyl right now, to the point where the manufacturers can't even keep up with the demand. What is driving this interest? Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I don't think there has probably been a week that has gone by on this station with either Bill in the morning or Scott Thompson in the afternoon or myself that transit has not been discussed at least once among all of our shows. Um, largely because for 12, 13 years now, LRT has been on the front boiler. And so there's never been a moment when transit was not an issue in the last decade or more. Well, makes for an interesting, interesting job to hold, to be someone who is in charge of transit, may eventually be in charge of the director of HSR. Her name is Maureen Kozenheath. She joins us now. Maureen, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. And it's good that you've you've come here now because with as I you know I was sort of joking, but with nothing going on in Hamilton Transit, your job should be a breeze now. It's the easiest job in the world. You know, I've been on the <laughs> job for two days. It's been completely relaxing. It's just perfect. Such a lovely piece of work. I think things are going to be great. Perfect. Well, a good a good sign. I hope that that level of relaxation continues. Although I'm not entirely sure it will. Um, not just because of here, Let, let's start a little more broad than just here in Hamilton, because I, I'm guessing that there probably aren't too many cities anywhere right now that don't have significant challenges when it comes to public transit. This is an interesting time for that world. Absolutely. I mean, COVID-19 has had a global impact and transit is no exception. What it has done to existing ridership levels, that transit agencies work is shocking. But what we're seeing in transit really mimics what is happening in so many other industries that have been decimated by the impact of, of the pandemic. So, and one of the, one of the things that everyone is saying is that now that things are getting back to normal, things will get back to normal. Is it your belief that those people who stopped riding buses or trains or whatever else because they weren't leaving the house, that they will go back to those same behaviors as before, or has the world changed a little bit under our feet? I think the return to normal is going to be a long, slow hill climb. We need to, as, as a society, really feel confident in going back to our old ways. And it doesn't matter how you travel. That consumer confidence needs to be restored. So when we look at the road ahead in terms of restoring ridership, we know the very first thing we need to do is make sure that our customers know we can't welcome them back, that it is safe, that the vehicles are clean, 
that they're appropriately maintained, and it has remained a viable mode choice for them even during COVID. There's also the question, and I don't know that you can answer this, I don't know that anybody in the world right now can answer this, but the way we work has changed. And as a result, a lot of people have discovered they can now work from home. They don't have to get up first thing in the morning and jump on a bus to go somewhere. Could that have an impact on what you're dealing with as far as numbers? I think it's uh, a little bit like you are asking me to predict the future there. And I'm not sure that anyone could answer the question. I think you've, you've, you've assessed that quite rightly. But what we do know is whether people are traveling to work and home, that's only one reason why people take public transit. They take public transit because they've chosen not to drive a car if they want to make an environmentally friendly choice. They ride public transit to get to school, to go to pleasure trips, recreational facilities, um, houses of worship. There's so many reasons beyond work that people actively choose to have a transit-friendly lifestyle. So I think that while we have a lot of the focus on work trips, we need to expand our horizons and look at the benefits to the society at large and the other reasons why people are traveling beyond work commuters. You came from London uh, to take this job. How well do you know Hamilton or the Hamilton system right now? Or is this really the beginning of a pretty steep learning curve to figure it out? It's the beginning of a steep learning curve, there's no doubt. I've lived my whole life in southwestern Ontario area. And, you know, I look at Hamilton as a center I've been to many times to attend events, either sporting events or arts events. So I'm certainly looking forward to um, expanding my knowledge of the system. I have a student at McMaster University, so I'm no stranger to, uh, to the university region area. And you know what? I didn't know London terribly well when I started at LTC many years ago. And there's nothing that a, that a ride guide and some good trip planning can teach you in a, in a matter of time. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right, just before the break, I was asking about knowing Hamilton or not. And, and part of the reason I was asking that, I'm wondering if there is an advantage when you come in. Obviously, you can understand what the challenges would be of not knowing but can there be an advantage to having a completely clean slate and not being beholden to what people have done in the past? I hope that there is some advantage to that. I mean, I come in uh, knowing that the city of Hamilton has a component of both urban, high-density, city core, rural area around it. So I think I can come in with an appreciation from that based on the geography I'm used to working in. But really coming in kind of with a a blank slate, I I don't think is a a bad thing, especially at this time. You just hit on something that, uh, boy, for someone who's been here for 48 hours, um, it's pretty insightful about this city and about the makeup of the city. Because one of the things a lot of people have said about HSR for a long time, since we have a city that's up on the mountain and rural and then another almost different city downtown, is that if you're out in the suburbs, the HSR has not been very good, a lot of people have said. And so philosophically, and I don't know if you've developed this philosophy yet, but philosophically, do you try to improve things by putting more buses on the routes that are already busy to try and speed things up? Or do you try to build up ridership 
um, by putting buses where there aren't many people right now and just trying to, um, to encourage them to get on because suddenly there will be service. And, and that is absolutely a philosophical approach, right? That's a strategic decision, and you need to figure out where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. But not only that, where you're going to be able to improve the customer experience the most. So you have high-density areas that are operating at high frequencies that are at capacity and can use more service. But you have areas that don't have a lot of service, and maybe you could attract new riders if you were to offer service. So that's always the transit conundrum. I think that one of the amazing evolutions we've seen in the industry is the use of smart technology and things like on-demand transit that will really allow you to develop a system that's responsive to changing and evolving customer needs and different markets. Is I, I honestly don't know the answer to this. Is part of your job building ridership? Or, or is it simply making a great service? Are, are, are you going to be looked at and, and judged in some sense or graded on how many people are riding? Well, ridership is always a key performance indicator in any transportation business, any public transit, no, no exception. So certainly I would hope to first move towards getting ridership back to pre-COVID levels. That would be our first marker. And we understand that that's going to take some time. That's not going to be an easy, uh, no pun intended, in Hamilton, but mountain to climb. Mm -hmm. It's going to take us a while to get back to our pre-COVID levels, maybe longer than we like. We need to be realistic, but that's a big journey ahead of us. As I've said a couple times, and you have as well, we, we know you've barely been on the job yet, but when you come in here, one of the things that you're going to face right away, and I know you, I'm sure you've been asked about it a bunch of times already, um, we have this LRT debate that's been going on for years and years and years. And we still at this point don't know if LRT is going to be operated by the HSR or operated separately. Would, would you want it to be under your umbrella or do you think this kind of thing could work better if it was separate? So as you pointed out, I've barely been on the job. I've managed <laughs> to, uh, to log about two working days. So I am in no way qualified to make some kind of assessment about where the house for that project should be at this point in time. It, I mean, it is probably though, and, I, and again, I, I, I'm not trying to push this knowing how short your time has been, but it, it probably is the number one issue in the city right now. I know it's down the road because there's still construction if it happens and everything else, but the, I mean, there the LRT would have to be the one of the pressing things that when you came on board that you knew was going to be sitting there for some sort of discussion or decision? There's no, there's no doubt that something like a light rail uh, infrastructure is a transformative project. And I think at the end of the day, we just need to take a deep breath and let council have a hot minute to determine how they want to move forward and develop what their plans are, and I really look forward to informing your decision-making, and we'll, one step at a time, take everything as it comes. At the very start, when you came on here, one of the things I said was that, of course, joking around, there's nothing going on, so it's going to be a super easy job. Obviously, that's the opposite of this. This is one of, I would think Hamilton has, because of everything going on, has one of the most challenging situations. There's so many tentacles going on right now to what could happen. Why did you choose to come here? What was the what was the attraction of this particular job, this particular challenge? I think 
part of the attraction was uh, all of the things that are going on. There's a really unique opportunity to be a city builder. And that is a, you know, career-defining opportunity that you don't always uh, get to have. And so that was very attractive when I was looking at the position and looking at all of the things I had and all of the potential that Hamilton has. There is a lot going on in the city right now. And the opportunity to shift shape the city over the next 5, 10, 15 years and beyond is a remarkable, remarkable place to influence change. We will definitely do this again and, and catch up with each other in a month or two or three once you've actually got to have your feet on the ground and get a sense and figure out what in the world is going on here. But uh, we really appreciate you doing this today and uh, giving us a, giving us a first taste of this. Maureen Cozen-Heath, the new director of the HSR. Thanks for the time today. Thank you for having me. Have a great night. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You may have heard that Paul Bernardo had a parole hearing today. Uh, shocking, shocking twist. He didn't get out. Yeah, I know. Not so shocking. Uh, not one person, I don't think. Probably not even Bernardo himself thought he had a chance of getting out. But, you know, I guess if you're in prison all day and you just want an outing to sit in front of a video camera and talk to some people, I guess you do this. I don't know. Uh, but it leads to a question. I mean, it leads to a serious and a really relevant question that I think a lot of people are having now. And that's this. If someone has absolutely no hope of release, and I, you know, by definition, I suppose there is some hope, but reality, no hope of release. Why go through the exercise? Why put the families through this? And why does our system allow this to happen? I want to bring in Jeff Manishin. He is a well-known, successful criminal defense lawyer in the city. He joins us now. Jeff, how are you tonight? Thanks for doing this. Sure, my pleasure, Scott. How are you? Well, I, I am well. I, I've heard from a number of people, on, not heard from, on social media and elsewhere today, asking that question, why do we do this? Why do, why do we go through this exercise when it's absolutely hopeless from the beginning? I guess probably because the best answer I can give you is the law doesn't work on the basis of, well, everybody thinks it'll be a certain way, so don't bother doing the hearing. We don't function that way. We function on the basis of we'll create a system that will permit an individual, if it's a trial, the individual gets to have a trial. We don't say but everybody knows he's guilty. Well, True. no, he gets to have a trial. If you want to have a system that will allow for a conditional release, and that if we're going to have that system that will allow for eligibility for parole on a life sentence, recognizing we have parole for other sentences, parole eligibility too, well, then the individual can have that hearing. Now, the likelihood of success, hey, we may well know, and in fact, we may want that likelihood of success to be so limited as to be virtually zero. But on the other hand, the individual can apply. Now, for, for every Paul Bernardo that runs one that he really doesn't have a prayer on, there may well be others where there's a legitimate basis for parole. And in fact, it's got no, no, no that doubt about that. Consider too often is there are people that are out on parole that get released into the community, subject to supervision, get reintegrated, get rehabilitated, and you don't hear from them again. And you now aren't paying for them to serve that additional time in jail. Yes, and I think that that probably um, doesn't bother a lot of people. What they don't know won't hurt them, I suppose, might be the thinking there. But here here in Canada, and you can correct me anywhere I go wrong on my interpretation of the law here, um, 
first degree murder gets you life with no chance of parole for 25 years, but there always is that 25 years down the road where you could apply and maybe get it. And that's even for people who have done things that are grotesque or killed two or three or more people. I mean, very much defining Paul Bernardo. Should we have a law like they have in the States, which we don't right now, that would allow for the next level where we say for those people who have offended society so egregiously with their actions that we can have life in prison with no chance of parole? Should that be something we contemplate? I personally am not in favor of that. Um, I'm going to allow for the potential appreciating Bernardo may truly be an, an exception where you could say the likelihood is virtually certain there's no chance. The concept of life without the possibility of parole, I guess I'm not there, Scott. I can see a case that could be made for it, and I think there are probably people who you might say, boy, if there was ever anybody who should qualify, that's fine, let's have that. The way that the Canadian justice system works is to say, no, we're going to allow for eligibility for parole, but we're going to rely upon a parole system where the potential of somebody who who is a real risk will not get out. So in other words, even though in theory the person is eligible for parole, in law eligible for parole, for, all, uh, for parole, for practical purposes, he's not going to get parole. The really bad guys, I would say, the really bad guys don't get parole. So it gives rise to an issue that you've raised, Scott, when you use the phrase putting the families through all of this. Okay, that, that's an element which in the last several years has be, you know, certainly been, has received the subject of lots of attention. The issue of families of victims having an opportunity to be present, be notified about parole hearings and so forth. It's important because they do have a, an interest, they do have a concern. We mm-hmm. have to remember, of course, too, mind you, that at sentencing, the victim impact evidence is very, victim's family place is less, less, less profound, let's say, at a parole hearing. But they still have the right to be there. Yeah, they have a right to be there. And we had Tim Danson on here several weeks ago talking about the fact that Bernardo was going to be coming up. And and of course, he represents the French and Mahaffey families. He has a an interest in their feelings. I think we all probably do. But I mean, it, it this seems like one of those ones where if you're if you're talking about Bernardo or if you're not, I don't even know how to word this, Jeff. I mean, if it, you're, you're everyday murderers, it sounds ridiculous, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about the Bernardos or the Clifford Olsons or the Robert Pictons, where you go, these are the worst of the worst. This can be a punishment that could be reserved for the very, very vilest people that doesn't get used very often. I, I just wonder if there's not a place for that. You'd have to create, Scott, a category of either offense or offender where you would say that if these criteria are proven, be, uh, let's say, and they would, they'd be aggravating circumstances, proven beyond a reasonable doubt if it was an exceptional circumstance for the offense, where you might see that. Um, and, and, you know, Parliament would have to determine that that's a legislative objective they wanted to pursue for the two or three or four cases in the 20-year period where that might be relevant. Because right. remember, you know, that they, when they're drafting provisions of criminal code, it's not on a specific individual case basis. It's meant to be able to deal with a course of conduct. So if we were to, you know, put our heads together and say, well, who would really qualify for such a sentence? If we could say, well, Olson, we could say Picton, we could say Bernardo. I don't know that we have a, a long list of a host of others where you'd say would qualify for them, too. So No, I so wouldn't think. It's, it's an issue. One thing that has come up, and the criminal code got amended, when you have multiple murders, in other words, somebody involved in a series of of homicides, um, that person, a judge, could potentially impose that consecutive parole and eligibility period. So instead of it being life 25, it might be life 50. 
life no parole for 50 or life no parole for 35. You probably have read and heard about those sorts of cases. That issue is going to the Supreme Court of Canada. The issue of consecutive periods of parole and eligibility, we'll see what Parliament, what Supreme Court of Canada does with that, does that or doesn't that qualify as cruel and unusual punishment. And that may give us some answers, Scott, as to how the concept of an offense punishable by life without eligibility for parole would be viewed by the court having regard to the charter. So we're yeah, going to we get an idea of that when that issue is decided by the court. We got to take a break, but was that not the uh, what the situation with the guy who shot a bunch of people in a mosque in Quebec? Was that not where the consecutive that's, was I at think play? That's the one. Yeah. Okay. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk. Uh, the one thing that uh, so many people on social media and elsewhere today are talking about is the families of the Frenches, the Mahoffs, whatever. Who I think one of them st- said he still is a psychopathic sadist. I think was one of the things. Could we not uh, adjust the parole hearing system a bit that if we've already got evidence that this person is a non-fixed, not healed, sadistic psychopath, we don't really need to go through with the rest of the thing and bring the families into this. Is there a way to temper that part of it somehow? Let's untangle that, Scott, because there's really two things in play. The issue of the families being a part of it. Okay, that's so individual to the families. I, I'm sure there are probably some families who are going to say, look, I'll have counsel there on my behalf just to observe the proceedings and keep me posted. It's just too difficult for me to be a part of it. And there are others who are going to say, no, uh, this person took my daughter's life. I want to be there. I want to ensure that I'm, I want the parole authorities to know that it, how important this is to me. I want to be a real, meaningful, visible presence, not somebody who's part of history. So the, the, the concept of families being there, it's an important change that's, that had, if you went back 20 years, that wasn't available, and it is now. So the issue of the, let's characterize it as the presence of and potential in, impact of the family's presence, that's there. Now let's take the other part of it. Realize that if the parole authorities are considering the risk that be involved in releasing somebody into the community, they do want to get reports. And so if a given offender has shown a significant measure of rehabilitation where the risk has really been reduced substantially, then it may be appropriate for parole authorities to say, look, subject to restrictions within the community, this individual could potentially be released, realizing that if he or she breaches, they could be back in custody and finish their sentence. If you have somebody who's done so poorly and done nothing much, and the psychiatric or psychological testings and reports show this individual is still uh, a clear risk to the public, hasn't done programs, shown no insight, shown no particular remorse, might profess to have changed, but they're able to see through all that. That makes the hearing an hour hour or less in length because that particular offender hasn't got much to present at all. The evidence of offenses is tough enough, but his institutional record and the potential for change that, you know, a lot of people would like to be able to present, say, here's why I should be let out. I'm not the man I was, to quote Scrooge from A Christmas Carol, okay? To show I'm not the man I was is an important way to potentially be able to get out. If you don't have it, what are your chances of, uh, of succeeding at a parole hearing? They've got to be basically minimal, if not non-existent. We're talking about the family. Let's go to the flip side for a second here, because again, one of the tweaks, one of the weird things about our system to a lot of people is that under our law, a criminal hasn't really committed a crime against the victim, but against society, against the crown. That's why a crown attorney prosecutes them rather than the victim's family prosecuting them. So obviously a victim's family's pain is relevant here, but have we kind of lost 
uh, the narrative a little bit and, and, and misconstrued or mistold how the law works for a lot of people who believe that it should be all about the victim's family's feelings? That's a really, really good question, Scott. Uh, just terrific. The issue of the impact of the, on the, of the crime on the victim and the victim's family is certainly very relevant on sentencing. At the sentencing stage, the court has to consider how to express repudiation of the behavior, the importance of general deterrence, a recognition that when you have a crime that impacts on members of the community, society has to show how they're going to deal with it and sanction it. So victim input is particularly relevant at the sentencing stage. The question of the degree to which it factors into a parole hearing, where the focus is not repudiation is not deterrence. Now the focus is, what is the level of risk to release this offender into the community? I could ask philosophically, Scott, what's the role of the pain and the impact on the victim at that stage? Recognizing it's a major, it's a significant part of the sentencing stage. And I would say to you that the, the criminal justice system would say it doesn't quite get the same weight because the focus is different. The focus is risk. So the question of what weight the parole system should put on victim input at the parole stage, it's one where if I had to try and explain it, that's the way I would do it. I would say the focus is ample and is specific at sentencing, but is different at the parole stage because it's a different issue being considered. Jeff, we've got 30 seconds left. One more thing on this. Um, we, we're not yet in this country showing every court case on television. Supreme Court is really the one that gets attention. But would parole hearings be something that we should televise to, to in order for society to be on top of this and, and make decisions for themselves and have confidence in the parole board? Well, they potentially could, Scott, because you don't have you know, witness testimony. I, I suppose one might say, though, that for an individual seeking to be re returned to the community, the scrutiny that might be attached by media attention to a parole hearing might make it very difficult for anybody who hmm. could, could get parole to successfully reintegrate in the community, because we well know that media scrutiny can really make it intense and difficult. So we'll leave Bernardo out for the moment. Uh, the, someone else in a different situation might well um, have his or her capacity to reintegrate in the community compromised by that kind of attention. Jeff Manishin, criminal defense lawyer from here in Hamilton. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Very interesting issues to discuss. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So it appears that we are heading for a vinyl shortage. And as I was thinking that, I realized the last time those words were uttered, it was probably the late 1960s and grandmothers everywhere were buying couches that your bare legs stuck to in hot weather. But we're not talking about that. We are talking about vinyl records. Vinyl records are flying off the shelves these days. So fast, it seems, manufacturers cannot keep up with the demand. How is this happening? What am I missing? I want to bring in Alan Cross, the guy behind a journal of musical things, the great blog that you want to read online about, well, musical things and other stuff as well. Alan, how are you tonight? I'm okay. What is going on with vinyl? I, I, I'm sorry, I don't get this. What is happening? Well, what happened was back in 2008, a bunch of independent record store owners in Baltimore got together and said, we're dying. Our stores are empty. We are in danger of going out of business. And somebody decided that, well, 
maybe we should do something like Comic Book Day, which had been a very successful thing for comic book stores across the United States, where people would come in on a designated day and get a free comic book and also be encouraged to hang around and uh, talk about comic books. So that was the birth of Record Store Day. And since that first Record Store Day in 2008, uh, vinyl sales have been going up almost you know, almost uh, uninterruptedly at double-digit rates. Um, mm. there, there was a little bit of a blip in Canada last year. We can talk about that. Uh, but this has been the case. So year-over-year double-digit growth with vinyl. In an age when CD sales are tanking terribly, when digital sales are tanking terribly, this particular type of physical format has really taken off. And uh, I, there's, a, there's a number of reasons for it. The first one is that people who grew up in the Internet age, in the age of digital music, are really kind of enamored with this idea of a physical product that you can hold in your hands that you can touch and uh, have to play on a, on a specific type of machine, that you can't move that machine around because it's not a portable thing. Uh, and, and it's just a different way of listening. So that's, that's number one. Number two, all the old people, and almost all exclusively guys, um, who have had record collections for, for decades, uh, felt welcome back in. This is what I remember. This is what I like. This is what I treasure. And I'm going to buy records again because I remember doing it when I was young. And then the third reason is the hipster reason, which mm. is kind of <laughs> cynical. But it's, it, what it does is, is, you know, people say, look how much more I love music than you do because of the inconvenience <laughs> that I'm going to go through. To yeah, consume music, I have to that's sit brilliant. there in front of. Yeah, I have to sit there in front of a turntable. I can't take it in the car. I can't can't take it jogging. I can't take it walking the dog. Um, <laughs> I can't skip tracks. I have to get up and turn the record over after about twenty minutes, and I have to take care of this physical product. And look also how many linear feet I can display. Of all the music that I have, therefore, you know, you've got your uh, 15,000 tracks on your iPhone. So what? I got 20 linear feet of albums. So, so, so am I to understand then that discomfort and pain and um, lack of convenience adds up to loving music more? Well, to some people, yes. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now, <laughs> to... to to, to strip away the cynicism of this, I mean, vinyl, people are rediscovering vinyl. It sounds good. It's, it's something that you actually have to interact with on a physical level. It's something that doesn't have a skip button. It's something that requires your concentration. And when you, when you put something on, I mean, you've got a piece of 12 by 12 cardboard with artwork, with liner notes, with credits, with lyrics, with a whole bunch of other things that you can absorb while you're listening and this is pretty cool because if it's streaming basically you know streaming is great it's never going away it's the biggest thing ever and it's going to continue to be but there's no context there's it's just organized noise going in one ear and out the other there's no one there to tell you why the song matters why the artist matters 
why the album matters, why the scene matters, you know, any history behind the, the band or the scene or the sound or, or the album, you know, who produced it, where it was produced, all that sort of stuff, you know, adds uh, knowledge is power. And when you have a, mm. a greater amount of information about what you're listening to, then you have a greater appreciation of what you're listening to. And, and vinyl gives you that. All right, let me let me back up for one second to something you said. We're gonna for a second. Let's leave out the hipster component because I, you know, I, I believe you, and I know that, uh, you know, there are guys walking around now with some really long, unruly beards, but they have to keep them because it's a hipster thing and it looks really, you know, whatever. But and so maybe the record thing fits in exactly that if I can survive this ugly beard, I'll, I'll I can do with the music. But I get it if the crackling and hissing from a record somehow takes you back and there's warm memories of that. I that I get. But for younger people, leaving out the hipster side of this, if you grew up at a time of pristine CDs, and maybe even since then, don't we in our society tell people and believe that we want and deserve the very best? And so it all—it seems like a step back to something not as good as before. Well, I, no, it's a step back to something better than before, uh, better than we have now. So. Look at it this way. A lot of the young people who are buying CDs, or sorry, buying vinyl right now, um, they came of age during the internet era. They have never known the world without spontaneous access to music. What they're doing is they're going back. Um, oh, sorry. And this music hasn't a very good audio quality. It's been, you know, MP3 quality. It's been, Apple has something called AAC, but it hasn't been full high fidelity audio. And these people have been listening through cheap earbuds. They've been listening through laptop speakers. They don't, they, they had no idea how good music could sound. But then somewhere along the line, somebody may have shown them or, uh, you know, or, or played a, a record for them. And they went, wow, listen to all the stuff that I have not been hearing. So what we're seeing is a back to the future situation where people who grew up on crappy MP3s and bad audio are going back to the 70s and 80s when high-end audio and high-quality and clear, pristine, loud, tight audio was what everybody was trying to achieve. If you were of a certain age, uh, you you know, and you grew up of a, in, in the 70s and 80s, I guarantee you, you spent a huge amount of your disposable income on speakers and amplifiers and turntables and all these things for both your home and your car. So you had the loudest, best, most pristine audio possible. And when you bought albums, you paid attention to things like engineers and producers and people who made this sound possible. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. what we're seeing with a bunch of people who grew up, you know, millennials who, who grew up with, with bad audio or at least substandard audio, they're discovering the glories of proper high fidelity. I will not tell you the story of the time I was in my buddy's car. He was driving in a white van pulled up beside us, pulled back the door and offered to sell us two gigantic speakers, which we bought, of course, not thinking where they probably came from long time ago, the statute of limitations has passed, but nonetheless, they were enormous, but that's what you had back then. The bigger, the speaker, the better, the, the better, the speaker, um, if you, the, the point of this though seems to be the the idea of warm. I always hear the word warm with this. Well, well, define when you're talking about a record and it's warm. Define what that means. Okay. Um, when you have a, a digital file, it is almost always compressed. 
it is maybe with an MP3, you bring an original file, which would be a, what's called a WAV file, on a, uh, which is what you have on a CD. In order to make that small, you have to strip out about 90% of the audio in that file. And the way you do that is with an algorithm that works on the principles of psychoacoustics. This is music that you can't hear, or at least the ear can't hear, because it's masked by other music. That's the psychoacoustics principle. The brain, though, can figure out that something is missing and it can't quite figure it out. But, and that's why if you listen to an MP3, uh, a song as, as an MP3, and then listen to the same song on an album, you can tell the difference. And an MP3 sounds a little shrill at the top end. There's not a lot of smoothness there. The bottom, bottom end, the, the, the bass might not quite feel as well, warm or round or full as it does from uh, a CD or from a piece of vinyl. And those extra frequencies, that extra musical information goes from the ear into the brain and gives you an extra shot of, a shot of dopamine, which is the body's feel-good hormone. And uh, there is, it's instantaneous. When you listen to an MP3, the brain tries to figure out what's missing. So there's a slight delay, we're talking about milliseconds, a slight delay uh, for the brain to excrete that, that dopamine, that feel-good hormone. So it's very possible, and neuroscientists continue to do studies on this, it's very possible that listening to a compressed audio file, like an MP3, doesn't feel as good as listening to a vinyl record or a CD because of that delay in the, the uh, secretion of dopamine. Now, you just wrote, though, on a journal of musical things, which I encourage everyone to go read every single day. Uh, you just wrote, if I recall, that they are talking about now with digital streaming, vastly increasing the quality of the digital stream. If yeah. that happened, would that kill the vinyl industry? I don't think so, because we're still dealing with uh, portable digital files. Um, the sound may end up being superior to that of vinyl. Now, okay, we gotta do a little science here. With a compact disc, you have what's called 16 bits, 44.1 kilohertz sampling. Uh, the new, what are called uncompressed lossless files, would, can have up to 24 bit, 192 kilohertz sampling. That is almost you know, five times the, um, or at least seriously, four times the resolution of a compact disc file. So these, they're, they're, there's a variety of them. One's called FLAC. That's probably the most uh, common one. Um, but there are, are others that don't compress the music. Don't take out that stuff that the ear can't hear because it's masked by stuff on top of it. And if you get into this, and this is another word for it is high resolution audio. And when you listen to some high resolution audio, it is astonishing uh, about what, what you can hear. Um, my best example was uh, a Bob Marley's Legends album. Somebody gave me a high resolution version of Bob, Legend, Bob Marley's Legends album. And this is a record, you know, it's got, you know, Get Up, Stand Up, it's got Exodus, it's got... Uh, you know, Three Little Birds, all these songs that we have known for decades. 
And we think we know the songs inside and out because we've heard them so many times, you know, through, uh, through stereos, through uh, headphones, through whatever. I heard stuff in the arrangement, little nuances, some subtleties that I'd never heard before. And it was divine. It was fantastic. It added so much more to the music. It was so much more real. Bob Marley, you know, was right there. I could, I could hear his bass player's fingertips. His finger, uh, his fingerprints rolling over the wind, wind, uh, the windings on his bass string. You know, it's just so but, clear, and wonderful. And, and that's but is that just is you? Is that just you, Alan? Because you listen to it. You know, I mean, you're you're an expert here. You listen to a ton of music. Is the average person going to pick that stuff up? Is it that obvious? It can be. It depends on the recording and depends how well these these uh, lossless files are are mastered and disseminated. Yeah. So what Apple is doing is they are going to put out their entire catalog uh, in lost audio at no extra cost. Um, Amazon has Amazon Music, and uh, it's immediately started doing exactly the same thing. Spotify, you might see, if you use Spotify, you might see a little logo come up called Hi-Fi. That's their high-resolution audio. Tidal has already been offering this. Uh, but for a price. And they also have something, another type of processing called MQA, which can be very good, a little controversial. Uh, and then we heard that Deezer today is uh, this Paris-based streaming company is getting into this uh, more high-res audio. And uh, this is going to happen. It, it's going to roll out. It'll be seamless. Uh, and, and people who have you know fairly decent headphones may notice that the music feels better. Well, I tell you, uh, whether or not anyone, and I, I, I'll take your word for it, that it will make a vast difference, but beyond all else, and you've touched on this and we got to go, but beyond all else, the one thing I will say unquestionably better about vinyl is the liner notes, the album covers, the stuff that came with it. I, I, I remember in the years that I moved away from vinyl and started getting into cassettes back in the eighties and you would almost go blind trying to, <laughs> trying to read the lyrics on the <laughs> fold out cassette thing. Uh, al- album liners, liner notes. That was, that was fantastic. That was, that was great reading material while you sat there and listened that disappeared because you don't get any of that with digital stuff. No, no. And there was a certain amount of mystique because back then we didn't have music videos. We didn't have social media. And uh, our artists were always at arm's length. We didn't know exactly, you know, who they were, what they were all about. Now it's, you know, you can be in contact with your favorite artists 24-7. But, you know, the, the, the thing that gave you that connection to the artist, whether it be directly or obliquely, was the album artwork, was the liner notes, were the printed lyrics, were the credits and all the things. That's how you got to know about an artist. Yep. And find little Easter eggs in there. And, and, and the best part was after you've been singing the song, not realizing that the lyric you're singing is entirely wrong and you sound like a moron when you read the, the lyrics, you go, Oh, that's what he said. Oh, okay. Cause I, I can't tell you how many times I've done that. Oh yeah. We still do it. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Cross, you can read him in a journal of musical things. Uh, put it in your favorites. Go read it. There's stuff on there every single day that is worth your while to go take a look at. Uh, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. 
You're most welcome. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.